The cross is the way in which God has chosen to express his love for us in the world. It is a place of atoning love, forgiveness, and redemption. Find out more about this central theme of Christianity today on the Central Baptist Church Podcast. In this month of April, we've paused over the meaning of the cross and Easter to look at some different aspects of the cross in our lives and our ministry. And so I want to finish that this morning, start next week on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. If you look at our website, what's the slogan or the heading that Central Baptist has over, over its overall ministry? Six words. Sorry? Good, thank you. Renewing our community through the gospel. And then the question is, what kind of church do we need to be to do that? And there's a lot of ways, a ton of ways, that we really can answer that. I've thought for many years about the cities to which Paul wrote and in which he established churches. I don't think it's any accident that they're cities and they're all different. Rome, Philippi, Thessalonica, Colossae, and so on. And they teach us a great deal about what it means to be a city, to be a church in the midst of a city. You see, sociologically, a church, a city, I'm sorry, a, a city is more than a collection of buildings, bus routes and whatever. A city is a mindset. A city is a collective attitude. A city is a way of thinking together. So I'd like to take you this morning on a brief tour to what I would really call uh, really the worst city in the world, to be a Christian and to have a church. Someone has graphically suggested that if you were to start with the red light district in Amsterdam, and if you would add the sensuality of Las Vegas, gambling and sex, if you were to add the affluence and the consumerism of New York, put these three things together, you would end up with Corinth. Corinth was a great commercial center. In addition, it was the center of intellectualism as people followed every new idea. It was a strategic seaport, so it became very wealthy. Just above the city was the temple of Aphrodite, a center for cultic and highly sexual worship, where spirituality is used as a center and an excuse for sexuality. The result is beyond any moral explanation. William Barclay, the Scottish um, teacher, said that each night a thousand sacred prostitutes. Now, there's an oxymoron for you, sacred prostitute, if you know what an oxymoron is. They were attached to the temple of Aphrodite, and each evening they would come down into the streets of Corinth to ply their trade. On the Greek stage, People of Corinth were caricatured as people who were immoral and drunkard and shiftless. In fact, when you said to somebody just in a casual way, you're living like a Corinthian, it was saying you're immoral and you're lazy. And against this background of sensuality and immorality and pagan worship, in an amazing way, we find a church. A church that was calling young men and women to follow Jesus. Paul wrote two letters to this group of Christians, reminding us that the letters in the New Testament are real letters written to real churches, real situations. They're not philosophical essays written by somebody on sabbatical. 
They're written into the rough and tumble of the life, where the church is in the marketplace of life. So imagine if you gather up some of the stuff that Paul addresses um, to the Corinthian church and say, this is kind of our board agenda. Here's what's on the agenda for a meeting. First of all, there's leadership and personality problems. What do you do when one says, I follow Paul, another one says, I follow Paulus, another one says, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And people are taking sides over their favorite leaders. In our church, it would be like saying, who wants to follow Pastor Scott? Who wants to follow Pastor Phil or Pastor Tom or whatever? Another problem, problems of spiritual immaturity. Brothers, he says, I could not address you as spiritual, but wordly, you are mere infants in Christ. Then there's moral problems in the church. There's relational problems in the church. One Christian is taking another before a heathen court. There's problems relating to marriage and divorce. There's problems of idol worship. That's chapter 8. There's problems in worship. It has nothing to do with drums or how loud the music is or anything. It's about how women behave and dress in worship and how people behave at communion. Remember, in those days, communion was a meal. Some people are being greedy and gluttonous when they came. And Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. You're eating and you're going ahead without waiting for everybody else. Someone remains hungry and you get drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in? Then there's worship problems. That's chapters 12 and 14. Finally, there's doctrinal problems. That's chapter 15. Wrong teaching about the resurrection. Can you imagine being on the board of this church? You know you're going to be there till midnight. You just really do. How could this kind of church hope to renew its community? How could you ever hope to win a convert and see them discipled into someone who follows Jesus? I think that would seem humanly impossible. And frankly, that's the same kind of question that faces us today when we think about the background of the city in which we live. I know Victoria is a beautiful city. It really is. Harry and I moved here 42 years ago. This is not the same city it was 42 years ago. They used to call it this city, just describe it as saying, it's for the newlyweds and the nearly deads. Victoria has changed. You know that, I know that, and it's changing. We need to realize, folks, that in the many decades of Christendom in which many of us grew up, if you're about, let's say, 50 or older, many people in my generation and yours They came into the Christian faith from a background of what we call Christendom, which means many of us grew up in the church, and we grew up along with our parents. We went to Sunday school, maybe not as creative as Tom does. We grew up in Christian homes. We grew up in a moral environment. And from there, it was really a short step to come to a place of personal faith. Our Christian faith grew up in a world of Christendom, But the day of Christendom is over. In today's world, and in a city like Victoria, I believe we will need to see a new generation of young Christians coming from a very different background. For many of them, there may be a history of sexual struggles, sexual and gender confusion, some of whom will be in personal relationships that have ended painfully. Many may come from homes that have known divorce. 
perhaps abusive homes, poor relationships with parents, scars from emotional confusion, various kinds of addictions and the culture in which they live. All of these things and more will combine to make the people who are lost and who come to Christ today very, very different from past generations, very different from my generation. And the question is, what kind of church will we have to be to meet and call and challenge today's prodigals to Christ? As always, this leaves so, so much behind. I'm deeply aware of that. But perhaps we find a clue several clues as Paul writes this letter to a church in a city which I call the city the worst city in the world so what kind of church do we need to be let me just draw all of this this morning out of Corinthians it will take a church that believes in the radical power of the cross nothing less will do in 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul puts it in a nutshell. He says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That is the radical revolution of the gospel. It is saying whatever you were before, whatever you were into before, whatever you did before, the cross intervenes and closes that door behind you. That is a truth that we will need to claim again and experience again in our Corinth. Chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor mere prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, Though the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I am well aware of the sensitivity of some of those words and phrases there. But Paul is making his point for this city. And he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Three powerful words declare this radical intervention of the cross. Washed. Justified. Sanctified. You see, set against the darkening moral culture, the radical power of the cross will be nothing less than the power that sets free those who have been enslaved in sinful patterns of sin. It demonstrates that people's lives can be changed and they are changed by the radical word and work of the cross. And we will have to be more and more a church that welcomes and embraces people and says to them, whatever you were, whatever you did is gone, it is past. You no longer live there. The old is gone. You are a nobody, but now you are a somebody. You were lost, but now you're found. And when they come and rise out of the waters of baptism over here, they will need to hear us cheer on the cry of the angels, Nike, 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 which means victory. So here's takeaway number one this morning. Christianity does not have a moral base. 
I read that some years ago. And I stopped and I thought, that's not right. And I began to poke my way into it. That is so right. Christianity does not have a moral base. Its base is the saving grace and love of God. And people will have to be helped to stand on new ground, to find new moral strength that they never knew they had, to find spiritual courage they never thought possible, to find spiritual stamina that they never knew they had, how to run the race. We'll have to help them know that grace is free, but it is not cheap. Every new life that comes to Christ in the days ahead will have to stand and live as a testimony that one by one, lives are changed by the radical power of God, which is found only in the cross. So you see in our city, a lovely city, perhaps more than ever before, every new Christian will mean a cosmic battle that is won at the cross by Jesus. They will represent someone who has walked away from the darkness of their past life and walked into light. It will also take a church that believes in the radical power of the Spirit. Nothing less will do. How do you help young men and young women in a city with that background, the Temple of Aphrodite, how do you help them flee and turn from sexual immorality? When on your way home from church, you might run into a gauntlet of immoral invitations from these priestesses from the temple up on the hill. Paul's answer then and now, I think is just radical. It's brilliant. He says to them in chapter six, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I don't think we would ever have thought of said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We would have said, your spirit is the temple. Your heart is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you see, the Apostle Paul will not allow them to drift into the excuse of dualism. We've talked about this before in which we separate our physical being from our inner spiritual being. He allows us no easy way out. He lays it on the line. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, when he uses that word temple, here's the morning Greek lesson for you. Paul has two words that he can use for temple. The first word is the word hieron. And that means all of the temple, the outside, the other rooms, the courtyards, the fences, the walls, whatever there is, the whole temple area, all of that is hieron. But then he has another word that he can use, and that word is the word naos, N-A-O-S. And naos means the holy of holies, that innermost area. It is where the high priest went only once a year to meet with God, and that is the word that's used here. You got that? Now, think with me, please, how daring this imagery is. He's saying your visible, tangible body, not just some invisible spirit, but your body that is sexual, your body that can be tempted, the lust of the eyes which sees images, that body, your flesh and blood body, 
It's the innermost area in which God regards as his personal holy of holies. God is not interested in our spiritual lives. He's interested in every fiber of our lives. That's what they taught them. In other words, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a gift from God. He lovingly invades all of you to be the holy impulse to every fabric of who you are. It means young adults and every one of us, your life has value. Your body has value. Don't do with it. Don't put into it. Don't squander it with anything that would dishonor, anything that debases, anything that degrades, anything that demeans this holy residence of God. Because that's what all of you are. The moral challenge for the days in which we live may not be easy. Young people are told that everyone's sleeping together outside of marriage. Actually, I don't really believe all that. I think some of them aren't. But the temptation to follow the crowd has always been there. And so it will take courage, spiritual courage, intellectual courage, in knowing who we are and whose we are. Takeaway number two, morality is rooted in this new identity. Personal ethics is rooted in integrity. That can be unpacked so much more for another time. How do we live in our city? It will take a church that believes in the radical strength of community. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Nothing less that will do. I believe that every city has a spirit. A spirit that often works against the spirit of God. So Paul challenges the kind of spirit which is in the city of Corinth. And there's a spirit in the city of Victoria, which we also need to recognize. What does he do? He challenges what I'll call the spirit of individualism by calling us into community, the church. Chapter 12, your body is a unit. Those made up of many parts, and all these parts are many. They form one body, so it is with Christ. For we will all baptize by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all given one spirit to drink. And then he goes on to talk about how we are all parts of the same body. We all need each other, folks. We bring our gifted lives together. Not only do the weak need the strong, the strong need the weak. Here's something I would love to try. Never figured out the details. Imagine each, if this, imagine this week, if from the church office we sent each one of you a piece of a jigsaw puzzle in the mail. And you're told next Sunday, bring this with you. Bring it with you. And then out in the fellowship hall, a huge picture is slowly being built up. People, when they come in, some people have got straight edges and they know where they go. And some people have got bits of this that look a little funny, but they fit somewhere. And other people have got corner pieces and they fit in somewhere. And some people still go home clutching their gift in their hand because they're not sure where they fit it. Some people don't show up. So there's a hole and a gap there. Picture's not complete. 
The picture, by the way, that we're building is not of our building here in Pandora. It's a person. What's his name? His name is Jesus. Can I say to you this morning, and those online too, some are local, some are all over the place. You are a vital part of this jigsaw puzzle. And can I say to you, we need you. If you slip away some Sundays or hold on to your life and don't share it, we all suffer. Can I tell you that I suffer? We will not become all that God wants us to be without you. We need you online folk as well. It means that the reality of being the church is so much more, so much more. Signing a membership form and showing up when we want to or when we feel like it. It means being part of a radical new relationship in which we bear one another's burdens, we love one another, we pray for one another, we cry together, we teach one another. I am part of you and you are part of me. It takes me Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together. It says, Satan demands to have a man. It's also a woman, by the way. Satan demands to have a person by themselves. We need one another more than we know. We are buddies together in this thing called faith. Paul also teaches us that he challenges the spirit of license by calling us to our true freedom in Christ. License is often for people when they say, we've, we've got the freedom to do anything we want. The usual reaction to license is legalism. A stricter demand on externals, that needs another whole work. If you want, read and study all of Galatians for that. There's a level beyond both license and legalism we have to discover. You know what that is? It is our true liberty and freedom in Christ. That's where transformation and metamorphosis takes place. From Corinthians again, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now what does this freedom mean? Does it mean in a church or individually we can just do whatever we want, no one looking over our shoulders? Say, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. No, it does not. And in Corinthians, this immoral city, Paul gives people three principles that govern our freedom. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says, everything is permissible for me. Understand, he's saying, I can do everything I want. But he goes on to say, not everything is beneficial. Not everything is positive and helpful for our lives. We need the maturity to figure that out. Again in chapter 12, he says, everything is permissible for me. I can do anything I want, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, yes, I can do whatever I want but I must not allow anything to have authority over me. It is speaking to us in the area of addiction. I will not allow anything to have control over my life or my body in any way. Chapter 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible for me. I can do everything I want, but he says not everything is constructive. In other words, I'm free to do what I want, but not everything will build me up or move me towards maturity in Christ, either in my body, my spirit. So we need to make wise choices in life.
against the spirit of license. Paul does not swing back to legalism for church. He calls us to a higher grasp of true liberty. Takeaway number three. Freedom is not the right to do what we want. It is the power to do what we ought. He also challenges, I believe, a new kind of, ero- a kind of eroticism in that city. We use the word erotic um, usually to mean something sexual. It's more than sexual. Erotic has the idea of something that is rooted in selfishness, self-centeredness. All we want is our own needs met. And he calls us from this selfish eroticism to a life that is giving and sacrificial and what we call agape. And it's no accident, no accident, to this erotic city that Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love is not rude, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Love never fails. It means that every one of you here this morning and online, your life is loved by God. You have been one at the cross. Every life is special to the Holy Spirit. He has gifted you in a unique way for the church so that you can bring all that you are to build up the church in unity and maturity to transform our city. To say I've become a Christian needs to be understood as the most radical thing in the world that we can say and be. To be a follower of Jesus is a radical thing. To say I have the Holy Spirit means that he moves in the deepest, most intimate part of who I am. And he moves in every part of my being, including my skin. People who belong to that kind of church, even in the worst or the most beautiful city in the world, will be encouraged and strengthened to stay in the race all the way to the finishing line. People in that kind of church just don't show up on Sunday morning to see what's happening. They know that they are the church all the time, utterly committed to the radical nature of the cross, the nature of the church. Remember the prayer of Jesus for his disciples in John 17, just before he goes to the cross. He says, my prayer that you would not take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. You would be kept safe by the radical work of the cross, the power of the Spirit, by fellowship. I invite you to stand. The worship team will come back. Remember what today's takeaways are. Number one, Christianity does not have a moral base. Number two, morality is rooted in our new identity. Personal ethics are rooted in integrity. Number three, freedom is not the right to do what we want. It is the power to do 
what we ought. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.